Here we stand. It's Kevin Andy Deagle Strong Voice back as always. This is the voice of the Republic and the Resistance. It's September 24th, and that, of course, stand by me. The message for today and always, folks, in these dark times, nothing matters more than standing with each other, not with words and good intentions, but with right action. And that right action began again this last week when. Two indictments were issued publicly against the killers of Indigenous activists on the west coast of Canada. You can read it at murderbydecree.com under the two latest ITCCS updates. Two cases brought before the common law court involving the murder of Harriet Nahani, William Coombs, and Johnny Bingo Dawson by agents of church, state, and big money. And the second case in the docket that we're going to hear about today, the case involving the criminal assault, and conspiracy against me and other leaders of the movement. And always in this campaign, we recognize that the direct action that has to come from each one of us begins with simple knowledge. And we often say to people, educate yourself, yes, but as a springboard to action, because goodwill has to be followed with action, boots on the ground. And another reminder for you folks who may not have received this, this 
September 30th, that's next Saturday, Canada launches its usual, what I call the reconciliation force, where they're pretending the genocide didn't really happen. Well, we say it's time to turn the tables on Canada's cover-up of its worst crime. On September 30th, say no to the reconciliation force by boycotting all its events. Wear black shirts that day, not orange shirts, to honor the victims and reclaim the nation. And then the next day, Sunday, October 1st, help us occupy and reclaim the genocidal Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches that killed 60,000 children and are still harming our people. This is a call that went out from the Squamish, the Chilcotin, the Cree, the Ojibwe, the Huron, and the Mohawk traditional elders. They've banished those churches from their territories, and now we are seizing them, the buildings and the wealth of those churches, as reparations for their genocide on all of us, reparations that are owed to us and which we can claim under international and tribal law. We are allied in the struggle as members of the Sovereign Republic of Canada, outside Crown jurisdiction. Every time we take these actions, the police stand back because they know we are a sovereign nation, not just individuals. So to join us in that campaign, write Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com and, of course, MurderByDecree.com and RepublicOfCanada.org. Now, today as well, we want to remember how standing by each other is how this action happened. You know, people like William Coombs and these other folks who were killed, they knew that by taking action, it might very easily cost them their lives as Native people, as people who don't have legal status under Canadian law, who can be killed with impunity and no one ever cares, which has been proven yet again. And yet, they took the step that cost them their life knowing that that's the only thing that ever causes change, when you risk and you sacrifice. Words don't cause change, folks. Action on the ground does. And that's why one of the lessons always, and I want to emphasize today, is that our key step we have to do is not talk to people. We have to lead others into battle with the system. Because it's only by battling the system that you learn from an experience that fighting against the system is your only real teacher. Words can lie to you but your own experience doesn't lie to you. And the experience of engaging with these criminal institutions gives you the wisdom and the confidence to carry on. So help us join the cause that these brothers and sisters gave their lives for. And today as well, I want to remind you, before we go to the last part of the show, which is going to be the actual indictment that's read out in the second case, um, to remind you that tomorrow, Summonses are being issued to 42 people named in these two court cases. The summonses are going out, being delivered in hand at their addresses, and also can be announced over the Internet that they must appear in court, the West Coast Common Law Court of Justice, Monday, October 16th in Vancouver. And if they don't respond to the summons, their immediate verdict of what's called a pro-confesso verdict of guilt can be applied to all of them if they don't respond. In effect, they're admitting to the crime. Now, the difference about this court case compared to other ones is that the enforcement mechanism is stronger because don't forget these court cases are part of a much broader banishment and reclamation campaign that had begun right across Canada over the last, well, really the last few months starting in the summer. Indigenous elders from nine nations have banished and reclaimed these churches from their territories. So they have also promised members of their warrior societies to help us enforce the verdicts. So in other words, folks, the verdict is already in, the actions are already started, and these people, if they don't respond, they will face arrest by Native warriors. And the police have been informed about that. We've asked the police to help us in enforcing the law. If the police don't, and if the city councils don't, 
they have crossed over the line and they're openly colluding with criminal bodies. And what's kind of amusing about all that is uh, this last, well, September 12th, it was a Vancouver City Council meeting. A delegation of ours went in to try to present them a cease and desist order that said the city council has to stop giving tax exemptions and licensing to the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches. They were not only barred from the meeting, but the entire topic was put under a media ban. Everybody on the city council was gagged and not to talk about it, even though two of the city council members support us, and they want those churches basically told to get off Indigenous territory. So it's building, and the enemy is panicking. They've got, they're divided in their own responses, and they're in panic mode. So now's the time to keep pressing. And wherever you live, take those actions. You can get all the material from us, Republic National Council at protomail.com, because this is part of a bigger message and story we're learning. And that is that when the city governments, when the police, when these institutions are all siding with the historic killers of generations of children, and the ongoing perpetrators of genocide, then we need a new system. We walk away from the city councils, and this is what's happening, as we've already done with the Republic. We're setting up 12 or more people, sign a charter, you're part of a local Republic of Canada assembly, and you can do this anywhere in the world because common law has universal jurisdiction. It's an inherent law. You sign a charter, 12 or more of you, your local self-governing assembly. You can pass and enforce your own laws. You can deputize the police, Establish your own police. This is what we've had to do in response to the collusion of the city governments with these criminal churches. Fine, we'll go around them. We say your power is nullified. We're setting up our own city government. And it starts small like anything good always does. And But a hundred of these little brush fires, fanning those flames, it turned into a conflagration that's going to burn down the old order and raise up the new one. So in other words, this isn't about genocide. And this is a lesson, it isn't just about genocide, it's a lesson you learn having been in the struggle for many years. And that's why you have to stay at this battle so you can learn these lessons. What began as a struggle about genocide and exposing these criminal actors has mushroomed into a whole international movement to expose crimes by church, state, and corporation to disestablish those institutions through common law courts and assemblies and to raise up a new society. In other words, we've evolved into a revolutionary awareness and stance, folks. Personal, political, spiritual reclamation and transformation. Revolution in the dictionary means to turn around in a circle and come back to where you began, which sometimes in history tends to happen. You know what we mean by revolution? We mean fundamental transformation of thought, mind, relationships, manifesting in a new kind of society. And that's what we're building on the ground. And this is what we're doing with these court cases is one piece of that bigger struggle. So again, do the education, murderbydecree.com, republicofcanada.org. Before we get to the half hour point, I want to uh, remind you folks that um, there's a, a number of my books which you need to read to get onto this. You could get it on Amazon. You can also get it by writing to me, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. Two of the books I'm going to be quoting from today a book I wrote about some of these fallen brothers, it's called Fallen, the story of the Vancouver Four. And on the front pick cover, there's a picture of me and Harry, Bingo, Johnny Dawson, uh, William Coombs and Ricky Lavelli, all of whom mentioned in the, these court cases. And the thing that, um, that I recognized is that the story of all these folks has never been told except in the little bits and pieces that are acceptable to pale ears. 
because that plague that consumed them is still everywhere and it's just as guilty and just as deadly today. And so when I first began to get to know these folks over 20 years ago on the streets of Vancouver, and they began to tell me the stories of the death camps that are still quaintly and falsely called residential schools, their story began to seep into me, and I began to get the real message of it. Bingo Dawson, Bingo Johnny Dawson, was one of the first, and he hung out on the corner of Maine and Hastings Street. He tried to coerce, and not coerce so much, even though he was good at that, uh, and convince others to get involved in telling me their stories. And um, one of the things that became clear to me right away is Bingo, like everybody else, knew that this crime was not only continuing, but anyone who talked about it was instantly targeted. You know, at the time, I didn't think that Bingo and Ricky and William and all the other ones were marked men. By that time, I had also lost everything in my life, thrown out of the church, blacklisted, lost my family. And so in a way, the, these folks on the streets gained a tighter claim on my heart that others had had previously. And what I recognized then is that we were being watched. One of the guys who watched us was a, one of these people who we've named in the indictment. His name's Peter Montague. He was sped of, uh, head of special operations in E-Division, RCMP. And he had us monitored and watched. And in fact, he was the one who put out the kill order. Um, one of the kill people who put out that order on our, on our brothers. And he's good at that because Peter Montague is a former special ops commando who knows the art of silent killing. It wasn't our naming of the names of dead children from the rest schools on the steps of the local churches that, that didn't get Peter Montague most upset. Even when an irate Gary Patterson, who's also named in the indictment, who was a smug minister of St. Andrew's Wesley United Church, demanded that the people who had occupied his church, including Bingo, be picked up. And it wasn't long after that until Bingo had been murdered by Vancouver police. So these people are all complicit. But it was when we went beyond naming the names of the dead children, when we began to talk about the native families today that are going missing, that are being driven off their land by PetroChina and the RCMP and the other corporations that are wanting the oil and gas, that's when we began to get targeted. I remember Bingo saying to me, somebody just told me I'm not going to live out to see the New Year. And that, sure enough, that's in fact what happened. And we're going to go into that more today in the latter part of, you know, when we talk about the, the second case in the indictment. But somebody else I want to mention in that was a man named John Jessamon. He was the chief lawyer for the United Church of Canada and a shadowy character who was ha uh, holding a lot of the strings in this whole story. Years before, when he was caught one night in flagrant delecto with two young boys in his maritime law office, John Jessamon was promptly elevated into a secure United Church sinecure. Not coincidentally, he also became the church's liaison with Peter Montague, sharing his membership at the Elite Vancouver Club and its after-hours child-killing child cult known as the 12-Mile Club. Well, the name of that group derives from the fact that outside Canada's 12-mile territorial limit, of its west coast, legal jurisdiction ends and anything can be done to anyone. And that's where, in fact, they often dump the bodies of the people they kill outside the 12-mile limit. And the same John Jessamon was the one who destroyed my life, targeted my family for destruction, helped my wife with her divorce after I brought this stuff out, and helped destroy my livelihood and started the blacklisting. This man reeked of something worse than corruption. One actually sensed filth exuding from him.
long before he sought my death, I had met him at a church ceremony once in Vancouver, and I shuddered inside. He felt unclean. And so I wasn't surprised that he was the one who engineered my own destruction. Because like all of his ilk, Jessamine assumed that after good pounding, I would simply dry up and blow away. When on the contrary, I landed on my feet in Vancouver's downtown east side among the very native people suing the United Church, his church, and naming their crimes of murder. Jessamine got together with Peter Montague and reopened the file on me. It's that old age-old habit of the state pinioning the arms of whoever the church decides to torture and kill. Mounties beat down the parents of the native children. They were roping together like slaves as they transported them on a one-way trip to the nearest-run residential school. The same cooperation and crime continued when Peter Montague slipped the Jessamine wiretap transcript, wiretap transcripts of my phone tele, uh, conversa- telephone conversations. This tag-team operation between Jessamine and Montague was what was responsible for not only the destruction of our movement, but the killing of Bingo and Harry and William, and Harriet. So I want you to keep that in mind because everything we're doing, and and by the way, some of that was taken from my book, Fallen, the story of the Vancouver Four. Everything we're doing is keeping that memory alive because it happened yesterday, it's happening today. And, you know, people know that in the abstract, but to finally realize it on the ground, you realize, wait a minute, it could hit me next, we've got to fight. Like I often say to folks, There's a difference between doing something out of a good intention. Well, let's see, I think I'll dabble in this issue this week and then move on to something else. There's nothing at stake there, so you can move on and forget about it. But when your life is on the line, when your life depends on people rallying around an issue, then you never give up. You have to fight for your own life and the life of others. And that's that's the advantage I've had. And that's, you know, something that we can only learn by engaging in battle. You can't learn it by listening to this today. You might be motivated to take another step. What's going to teach you is by engaging in battle. Get out there taking over the churches, not just protesting, because one of the lessons we learned and one of the reasons our movement got co-opted and destroyed was because we didn't strike quickly at the jugular of the enemy. We went on nice little protests. We talked about the issue. We tried to appeal to the conscience of people that didn't exist in fact, we should have banished them and reclaimed their churches then, and it couldn't have been as easily co-opted. Now everyone's talking about genocide and healing and reconciliation. That's how easily the system is co-opted unless you keep moving beyond the system you're fighting all the time and striking at their jugular. And the last uh, few minutes, I want to talk about that and quote from a, another book of mine, Truth Teller Shield, a manual for whistleblowers and hellraisers. In a way, you know, this is even more important than our common law training manual, this book. Because the Common Law Training Manual, which, by the way, is one of our best-selling books, we sold over another hundred of them last month on on Amazon on the Internet alone. But um, this Manual for Whistleblowers is the practical how-to book, and it's what you need on the ground to know how to navigate in the fight against a bigger enemy. Like I just mentioned, you have to immediately go for the enemy's jugular as quickly and unexpectedly as possible, and that's how you make up for what you lack in size with audacity and force. An example, you don't simply hand out leaflets. You walk into a church and occupy it and tell the people to not put money in the collection plate because it's going towards criminal purposes. Every time we did that, our adversary collapsed publicly soon after. Within a few weeks of us doing that, Canada announces its bogus apology. And it's because our best weapon 
is in publicly shaming our opponent isn't just the truth itself, which you have to publicly announce over and over. It's also creating the biggest conflict possible to scare your adversary into thinking of how much they're going to lose in a drawn-out battle with you. It doesn't matter if there's one or five or ten of you. You have an inordinate power because you're standing on the truth. They know they're guilty. They're very easy to provoke. We saw that this last week. Vancouver City Council starts going into panic mode because we demand they obey the law and not fund genocidal bodies, not give them tax exemptions. That's a kind of crisis you can provoke very easily, just even one of you doing it. Of course, that all depends on you getting the story out publicly. And, of course, that's a big roadblock we face because everything is so controlled now, including the so-called alternative media. That's why the best publicity is face-to-face, on the ground, on the street, with a bullhorn. One of my friends in Australia, Georgina Cameron, she's done this, as have people around the world. If there's only you, get a bullhorn, set it up in the window of your car, and be a mobile protest. Drive around outside the churches on a Sunday morning, blast them with the truth, and drive on before the cops show up. That's mobile protest at its best. You're reaching a lot of people with a simple message with least damage to yourself. Maximize the impact on the enemy. Minimize it on yourself. That's the way guerrilla operations work. And so, you know, an, another quote in that, that very important, and one of our favorite guys, General Sun Tzu from In the Art of War, written 3,000 years ago, but still very relevant to us. He said, hopeless situations are your best ally. Hostile ground heightens your focus. Place yourself where you cannot retreat. Facing death, you will find your true strength and profound inner power. No training can prepare you for this. Dire circumstances evoke it, unsought yet attained. The right emergency unleashes enormous power in you greater than your individual parts. We learn that all the time. And I'm, I'm focusing on that because this show, like all of our shows, isn't passive education imparting passive knowledge. It's a training exercise to get you to confront a system. That's going to be your best teacher when you act directly and learn from your own experience. In other words, the focus of this show and all our shows is operational, not theoretical. And that's another important lesson for today. Don't think theoretically ever. Think operationally. How am I going to do this? How am I going to go to the next step? What do I need to know to take action? Not What do I need to know to feel good or to think that I'm aware and somebody isn't? So think operationally. And carrying on with our whistleblower manual, the best method for cutting-edge truth-telling is not to build a large, unwieldy organization. That's always the first impulse. Oh, you've got to get a lot of numbers out there. No, that's a fallacy. That's being bred into you by the system. Because when you're a big organization, you can be easily monitored, infiltrated, and wiped out. It's happened numerous times to us. The best way to operate is not through a big organization, but rather through small, educated, and disciplined action groups that can assault your enemy without the liability of the weakest element. Guerrilla squads, say three to five people, can harass the enemy with unexpected protests or occupations and then fade into the shadows, presenting no visible target to retaliate against. That tends to strike fear and uncertainty, even into your biggest enemy. At the same time, small groups don't mean your aims or impact have to remain small. On the contrary, your voice must sound like you represent a million or more people, which of course you do. You represent all those who suffer or will suffer unless your adversary is taken down the corporatocracy, China, the Vatican, these genocidal churches. 
your movement has to be loud and disruptive. And here's the point. Always be loud and disruptive. But organizationally, you have to be tight, closed, and action-oriented. Just a few of you can do that. You know, when Bingo and the others walked into St. Andrews Wesley United Church, there was six of them. And everyone literally started running out of the churches. <laughs> and that's why Gary Patterson, the minister, uh, put the word in at the police to get rid of Bingo because he had led that. Gary Patterson is directly implicated in this murder. Former moderator of the United Church. I'll get to him during the last half of the show. But don't forget that that direct action by a few tends to strike fear in our adversaries. It's just that we're not striking at the right place. You can have a thousand people on a polite protest outside City Hall, nothing happens. Six people in, in, the, in their guts, right where it hurts, their public image and money, find out where they're weak and strike there. doesn't take numbers. Because as I remember, one of the greatest uh, first rules for activists is power is not only what you have, it's what your enemy thinks you have. You have to bear that in mind all the time. Between 2005 and 2008, there was only two dozen of us, and we made Canada buckle and admit to genocide. Not through traditional predictable protests, which the system wants and is arranged to contain all the time, but striking unexpectedly where they're weak. Always think about that. And in the last few minutes, I want to remind folks that the other part of of, um, this book, you should really read, it's on page 41 of the Whistleblower Manual. It's called Learning the Sniper's Trade, the Advantage of Being Small, Mobile, and Unpredictable. And again, quote from Sun Tzu, Let your plans be as dark as night, then strike like a thunderbolt with utter surprise. For when you are few and the enemy is many, you can use the few to strike the many because those whom you battle are restricted, being larger and more unwieldy, like a corporation, like a church, like a government. A single shot from out of the dark is more frightening to a big opponent than a hundred shots in daylight. Again, a single shot from out of the dark is more frightening to such a big opponent than as a hundred shots in daylight. Now, with that in mind, some final reminders. Go to murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates to read the content of what you're going to hear about today. The two cases in the docket before the West Coast Common Court of Justice. The summons is going out tomorrow. That'll also be posted. The summons against these guilty individuals, summoning them into the court on Monday, October 16th. There'll be a lot more on that. And part of the wider reclamation and banishment movement, the targeting of churches, Sunday, October 1st. It's the next big action. Wherever you are in the world, go after a Catholic church. If you're in Canada, join us at Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches in direct reclamation. To be involved in that, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. Angelfire101 at ProtonMail.com is my personal email. RepublicofKanata.org. And the final thing to keep in mind here is that the power to change the world is in your hands. Literally, when one individual discovers that power, we have enormous power. And I'm proved that 30 years later, I'm still at it because of learning and incorporating and acting on all the lessons I've been talking about with you today. But it may start as an individual, but it manifests collectively. Seek out, form cell groups. Use cell groups as the basis of action. And then carry on with everything that you've learned. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. I thank you. We're going to be back again live next week. And now in the latter half of the show, we're going to listen to the targeting of myself and other leaders of this movement. And this is the second 
case in the docket of the West Coast Commonwealth Court of Justice. Take notes, learn. We'll be back next week. I thank you. Hello, my name is Kevin Anadigal Strongvoice. It's Friday, September 22nd, 2023, and I would like to thank the court and its honorable judges for allowing me to appear before today to give testimony in the second case docket before the court, West Coast Commonwealth Court of Justice, having to do with the criminal conspiracy and assault against myself based on legally uncontested facts and evidence. And I want to start by saying that I'm particularly thankful to be appearing here on the territory of the traditional Squamish and Musqueam people, and especially in memory of my friend and fallen, murdered comrade and associate, Harriet Nahani, one of the early witnesses to the crimes of genocide in Indian death camps called residential schools, the cause for which I have suffered so much over the last 30 years. My case is a spotlight on the bigger crime that has not gone away and is only intensifying. And for that reason, the facts and evidence of my case are especially important for all people. I want to begin by reminding the court that a lot of the things I'll be discussing, the documents, all of the hard evidence is found not only at murderbydecree.com, but in my most recently published book, Crimes Against Humanity in Canada, The Evidence, and especially Part 3, which documents in detail my targeting by the United Church and the government and other forces after I began to bring up these crimes in 1995, after my expulsion from the United Church. It also contains the history of our movement that brought out the crime of genocide and the crime itself. And I will provide, of course, all of the accompanying evidence and testimonies and documentation to the court as part of the docket of evidence. Let me give, first of all, the general facts and details of my case. I was a former ordained minister of the United Church of Canada, who was ordained in 1990. As a married man with two small children, I became the minister of St. Andrew's United Church in Port Alberni, British Columbia, and I was in that position from July 15, 1992 to January 23, 1995, on which date I was fired without cause. During my Port Alberni ministry, I expanded my congregation from 20 to 100 people and brought indigenous people into my church for the first time. I opened my pulpit to survivors of the United Church's local Indian residential school death camp. And shortly before my firing, I began to speak about those crimes, as did survivors of those crimes, from my pulpit and especially the survivors of the Alberni Residential School began to mention children being murdered there and buried in the hills behind the school. Shortly after they began to talk about that from my pulpit, on January 23, 1995, I was summarily fired from my position without cause, notice, or review. I was dismissed by two regional church officials who lacked the authority to remove a minister, Art Anderson and Cameron Reed. These men acted under the secret instructions of the Chief Fiduciary Officers of the United Church, at the time Moderator Marion Best and General Secretary Virginia Coleman, also by order of Brian Thorpe, the Chief Executive Officer of the Church's BC Conference, and John Kishore, who was a Provincial Government Cabinet Minister and a United Church clergyman. My illegal removal was precipitated as well, 
not only by the mentioning of killings in the church's Alberta Residential School, but by a letter I wrote to church officers on October 17, 1994. That letter protested the church's theft and secret sale of land belonging to the Ahousand Indigenous Nation. The sale of that land to Macmillan Blodell, which was a financial benefactor of the United Church. In conjunction with its major shareholder, the BC government, Macmillan Blodell was soon after acquired by Weyerhaeuser Limited, the largest logging company in the world, in a, the biggest corporate takeover deal in BC history, totaling over $3 billion. In other words, we were stumbling over a secret land deal, very lucrative land theft. United Church officials have subsequently stated on record that I was removed from my pulpit, not for any wrongdoing or incompetence as a minister, but because I issued a letter about the Ahousen land theft and I re revealed crimes in the Alberta Indian Residential School. And that's on record, including at my illegal delisting trial that threw me out of ordained ministry. The day after my firing, my wife, Anne McNamee, was approached by United Church official Phil Spencer and United Church lawyer John Jessamine. On behalf of the church, Spencer and Jessamine offered to pay Anne to leave me and to divorce me, to monitor and harass me, and to estrange my children from me, our two daughters, Claire and Eleanor. Anne agreed to do so. She subsequently won legal custody of both our children with the collusion of BC Family Court judges Ronald Barber and Alan Donaldson. Now, Judge Donaldson was a close friend and associate of Bill Howey, one of the United Church officials on Vancouver Island who helped to instigate my removal. Anne McNamee's lawyer, Ron Hunick in Vancouver, was paid at least $36,000 by the United Church to handle Anne's divorce and custody action against me. United Church lawyer John Jessamine arranged my firing and divorce and prevented me from finding other work in the church. Jessamine also blocked my appeals and attempts to negotiate a resolution with my employer, the Comox and Nanaimo Presbytery officials. In early February 1996, after I began to protest my firing and I began to gain media coverage, the first Indian residential lawsuits were announced. Indian residential school lawsuits were announced at that same time. And exactly at that moment, when we began to get media coverage about my firing and the residential school crimes, at that point, John Jessamine initiated the process of permanently expelling or delisting me from the United Church ministry. And again, all of the supporting documents and proof of this is found in my accompanying affidavits and, and other material in the docket of evidence. Well, during the same period, in, during 1996 and 97, in collusion with the University of British Columbia President Martha Piper, Jessamine arranged the sabotage of the doctoral studies program that had recently commenced at the university, and also blocked my subsequent efforts to publicly lecture on campus about the Indian residential school crimes. During this period, John Jessman and church official Brian Thorpe also sabotaged my attempt to become an ordained Unitarian minister in Vancouver. And they did that with the collusion of that church's Pacific Northwest Regional Officer Anne Heller and Unitarian minister Philip Hewitt in Vancouver. Jessman Thorpe and other United Church officials were actively assisted in these assaults on, on me by 
several other people, including Inspector Peter Montague of RCMP E-Division of Vancouver and his Deputy Sergeant Jerry Peters. Both of these officers personally harassed and threatened me after I began to publicly protest the death of Indian residential school children in December 1995. These RCMP officers also, include, uh, also colluded with my wife Anne McNamee in these and subsequent black operations against me, as did Thorpe and John Siebert, who was a United Church liaison officer with the RCMP. Finally, on August 29, 1996, in Vancouver, the United Church convened its illegal public delisting trial of me, the first such public delisting of a minister in United Church history, which eventually cost the church over $300,000. Despite his role in my firing, divorce, and blacklisting, John Jessamine served as the chief judicial officer at this hearing. Along with Branthorpe, Jessamine handpicked the three delisting panel members who would decide whether I would retain my professional ordination. The panel's chair, Molly Williams, was a close friend of Jessamine, and had nominated him for United Church moderator in 1984. Also, the church where they met was owned by a very close friend of Branthorpe's, Brad Newcomb. The, my delisting hearing occurred for about six months, between August 29, 1996 to March 7, 1997. The stated aim of the delisting was to consider a motion from Comox Nanaimo Presbytery to place my name on the church's discontinued service list. That'd mean I couldn't work as an ordained minister anymore. The, the onus, however, was on the presbytery to prove beyond any reasonable doubt that I was an unsuitable minister. But paradoxically, the same motion stated that there were no charges against me and I was not under any form of discipline or reprimand. But I had simply been removed from my ministry and prevented from seeking further work in the United Church, quote, for the peace and welfare of the church. But they never defined what they meant by peace and welfare. Komotsanamo Presbytery was represented at the delisting hearing by a Catholic lawyer named Ian Benson, who was a friend of John Jessamine. Benson received over $50,000 in remuneration from the United Church for his work in throwing me out of the church. I was legally unrepresented and unpaid, and I was expected to appear at my own expense without being given the cause of the action, any evidence, or the names of my accusers, or any other requirements of natural justice and due process under the law. Now, an independent legal examination was conducted of the delisting hearing after the fact, based on all the evidence and witnesses, and they revealed the following uncontested facts never been challenged at all by the United Church, these facts. One, the hearing continually violated or ignored due process and legal rules of procedure. Two, John Jessamine and the panel members demonstrated a consistent bias against me and made openly disparaging remarks about me on the record, including, quote, we've come to expect this kind of thing from Kevin. And if Kevin doesn't play ball with us, he'll never work in this country again. Both of those remarks made by John Jessamine and from Molly Williams, the panel chair, quote, you have only yourself to blame for this situation, Kevin, unquote. Point three, during the hearing, Jessamine, the panel members, and church lawyer Benson routinely went to lunch together, socialized, and examined copies of the hearing minutes without informing me. Four, the panel members continually allowed hearsay and unsupported allegations to stand as evidence against me and refused my request to know the grounds for delisting a United Church minister, which I needed to have in order to conduct a proper defense. Point five, 
None of the four witnesses called to testify against me by Presbytery had any first-hand experience of me or my work. One of them, Kathleen Hogman, had never even met me before the hearing. Their statements, in other words, constituted hearsay and therefore were inadmissible, not only under the law, but under the panel's own rules of procedure. But nevertheless, the panel de declared them to be admissible. Point six, none of the witnesses called by me in my defense were allowed to appear before the panel, nor were any of the 38 letters of recommendation for me that I submitted as evidence. Seven, against rules of legal procedure, John Jessamine continually halted the proceedings whenever I asked Presbyterian witnesses questions about Indian residential schools or stolen native land, even though Jessamine acknowledged that those were the issues and the reason behind my firing. Point eight, under cross-examination, Comox and Amo Presbyterian officials Bob Stiven and Wynne Stokes stated on record that my removal had never been discussed or put to a vote in the Presbytery, and therefore, my firing was illegal under United Church regulations. Stiven and Stokes also admitted and stated on record that I had done nothing wrong, I faced no charges, I was simply setting church policy when I objected to the House Land deal, and that Presbytery had, quote, no concerns about Kevin until I wrote the letter about the land issue. Point nine. Evidence submitted by me revealed that in April 1996, National United Church leaders Marion Best and Virginia Coleman had met with officials of the New Chalmers Tribal Council in Port Alberni and paid them to attack and undermine my investigation into the death of Alberni Indian residential school children. This plan was facilitated by Brian Thorpe and his fellow official John Siebert. According to Bruce Gunn, who was present at the meeting, quote, The payoff deal Best and Coleman made with the West Coast Chiefs is responsible for the present delisting actions against Reverend Annett. The issue before us is therefore not one of Kevin's suitability for ministry, which has been amply proven, but rather the Church's efforts to silence an inconvenient whistleblower. I am convinced that Reverend Kevin Annett is the target of a definite criminal conspiracy by the United Church and others that is seeking his professional and personal destruction." Unquote. Point 10. Other evidence submitted by me in the hearing revealed that it was John Jessamine himself who was responsible for stopping Presbyterian negotiations with me after my firing when we were on the verge of a resolution, and thereby provoking my delisting. Accordingly, Jessamine was compelled by legal procedure to step down as judge of the hearing because of a clear conflict of interest. I asked him to do so, and he refused. Under legal advice, I then left the hearing, at which point the panel chair, Williams, Molly Williams, yelled at me, quote, If you leave now, Kevin, you will face dire consequences, unquote. One of the few truthful things that was said in that hearing. And finally, point 11. The delisting hearing, believe it or not, then continued without me being present. At no point prior to or after my departure from the hearing did Presbytery lawyer Benson ever present any evidence that proved Presbytery's case, namely that I was unsuitable for United Church ministry. On the contrary, the bona fide evidence indicated otherwise. Nevertheless, with no basis in fact or evidence, the panel voted on March 7, 1997 to delist me and expel me from United Church ministry. There was no appeal allowed, and that concluded the hearing. Well, soon after this farcical delisting hearing, the government continued to assist these church attacks against me by helping to strip me of my legal rights and civil liberties. The Attorney General of British Columbia, Ujel Dusanj, 
who was a cabinet colleague and friend of John Kishore, who had instigated my firing, decided to refuse to review the fraudulent delisting hearing. Responding to 22 letters of protest from eyewitnesses to my delisting, Ujjal Dessange falsely claimed in writing that, quote, the internal disciplinary processes used by churches are outside the jurisdiction of this ministry, that is, outside the laws of Canada. Now, Dossange falsely stated that these were disciplinary hearings, and also, a few years later, he continued to use his office for criminal purposes by appointing a known child trafficker and child rapist, Chief Ed John, as the Minister of Children and Families for British Columbia, and Dosange then threatened lawsuits against anyone who challenged that cabinet appointment. Well, that kind of corruption and official state sanction of the United Church's fraudulent show trial and my professional destruction, it encouraged a new round of state-level assaults against me. These RCMP and led, church-led attacks intensified during 1998 when I and residential school survivor Harry Nahani launched a public campaign to prosecute and expose genocide in the residential schools. And that high point in that was on June 12, 1998 in Vancouver, when we convened a United Nations-sponsored tribunal into the residential school genocide, the first such inquiry ever held. This event won international attention, but also provoked an expanded campaign of state terror against us and our work that involved the Canadian government and even the office of Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. For after the tribunal garnered media coverage outside Canada during the summer of 1998, Prime Minister Jean Chrétien ordered the destruction of Indian residential school records and the disinterring of mass graves of children near the schools. He also authorized covert actions against me, Harriet Nahani, and Indigenous activists on the West Coast. Sources state that these directives were issued on August 12, 1998, in a confidential communique Chrétien said, sent to the Privy Council office in Ottawa. These covert actions were implemented and coordinated by RCMP Inspector Peter Montague and a former FBI informant and provocateur named James Craven, who had infiltrated the tribunal in Vancouver as a judge. Craven began the first internet smears against me, spread information about me and Harriet, and paid our supporters to spy on and denounce us. The RCMP were assisted in this by the same Chief Ed John, of the Kerasi County Tribal Council, who sent strong-arm operatives to assault me during the June 1998 tribunal and eliminate eyewitnesses. And I know that for a fact because a man named Dean Wilson, who worked for Ed John, grabbed me by the throat on the first day of the tribunal, threw me against a wall and said, Eddie John doesn't like what you're doing. He says, cut out all this talk of rest school kids or you'll get it worse. Unquote. The covert operations against me and Harriet intensified during the subsequent decade as they, we established our own Truth Commission and rallied genocide survivors across Canada in high-profile pro public protests, conferences, and church occupations. These escalating covert operations were aimed primarily at me as the main spokesman of the movement. They included a broad-spectrum assault on me, my children, friends, and associates, my public actions and livelihood, and my public and media image a blacklisting and smearing that continues to the present day. This state-level assault represented the first major effort by Canada to censor, misrepresent, and decriminalize its domestic genocide and murder of more than 60,000 Indigenous children in the residential schools. It included silencing survivors with hush money, destroying grave sites and other evidence of the crime, 
restricting legal action against the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches, muzzling the press, and eliminating natives who would not cooperate with this cover-up, especially residential school survivors working with me. Between 2007 and 2012, seven indigenous allies of mine were killed while in the hospital or police custody. And that's covered in detail in the first case docket before the Honorable Judges. By 2003, these attacks had censored my name and work from the Canadian media and had ostracized me in the academic world where I was banned from campus speaking after my PhD had been blocked at UBC and my books were removed from course curricula and local libraries. But my unswerving efforts to publicly confront the guilty churches eventually forced the Canadian government to publicly acknowledge the Indian residential school genocide. It did so on a state of statutory significance, June 12th to June 11, 2008, one day before the 10th anniversary of the seminal June 12, 1998 tribunal. Canada's June 2008 apology for Indian residential schools began the institutionalization of the official cover-up. It did so by legally indemnifying the government and churches for their proven crimes against humanity, banning and censoring me and my work across Canada, and creating a false substitute narrative about the residential school genocide. This dissimulation is manifested in the misnamed Truth and Reconciliation Commission, established by the guilty government and churches in direct response to my campaign in order to nullify its impact, fog and decriminalize the genocide, and exonerate the perpetrators. Undergoing a subsequent night and fog public erasure within Canada as part of this cover-up, I then expanded my work to Europe during 2009 and helped establish the International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State, the ITCCS, in June 2010 in Dublin. But this heightened campaigning drew even greater repression down on me and my supporters after we began protesting at the Vatican and in London, and after we launched a court action against Pope Benedict, Queen Elizabeth, and others that caused Benedict's resignation on February 11, 2013 the first such resignation in over 600 years in the Vatican. Intelligence sources indicate that the escalated covert operations against me and our movement were organized by the Vatican spy and assassination agency known as Santa Alianza, in collusion with MI6 and the RCMP. These agencies were responsible for the sabotage of the ITCCS and its courts, the deportation of me from England in May 2011, and the death or disappearance of four ITCCS activists in Europe and seven of our indigenous allies in Canada during this period. In addition, Santa Alianza was implicated in the, my near-fatal chemical poisoning during the summer of 2021 when I was on a speaking tour in eastern Canada. While the systematic criminal assault on me since January 1995 constitutes a single litany of permanent church and state terror that nearly beggars description and imagination. The evidence of these assaults reveals that they recurred routinely, intensifying whenever I began to make public headway in the campaigns. And an example of this is the concerted attacks against me by church and state occurred whenever I first began to bring out the, these truths. For example, when I first exposed the Indian residential school crime and the United Church theft of a house and land in 1995 and 6, when I launched the first residential school tribunal in 1998 and the first truth commission in genocide in Canada in 2001, when I began the national church protests and occupations between 2005 and 8, forced Canada's public admission of genocide in June 2008, 
launched the ITCCS in Europe in 2010, conducted the first excavation of a mass grave of children's remains at the Anglican Mohawk School in Brentford, 2011-2012, convened common law courts that prosecuted and forced into resignation Pope Benedict in 2013, helped establish Republic common law courts and assemblies across Canada, 2020-2021, and finally launched our recent campaign to expose and prosecute the ongoing genocide of Indigenous people in Western Canada by China, the Crown, and the Vatican in 2022 and 2023. All of these incidents provoked increasing attacks on me and my followers. According to a source within the RCMP, whose statement you have in your docket of evidence, quote, I don't exaggerate when I say that billions of dollars and dozens of operatives have gone into discrediting and shutting down Kevin Annett since the 1990s. It's been one of the biggest badjacking in operations in our history, unquote. Well, these uncontested facts indicate that I am a targeted and persecuted political prisoner in exile in my own country. I am unable to gain employment, establish any security, conduct my public work in human rights campaigns, or pursue a free and unimpeded life because of a permanent criminal conspiracy being waged against me. That conspiracy originated and is maintained and directed by the highest levels of church, state, and corporate power in Canada and abroad, and by their agents, some of whom are some of whom are named in this public indictment. Accordingly, I name the following people as defendants in this case as the people who are culpable participants in the criminal conspiracy and assaults against me. I name the following Jean Chrétien, former Prime Minister of Canada, Jorge Bergoglio, Chief Bishop of the Church of Rome, Domenico Gianni, Director of Santiago Anza, Ogel Desange, former Attorney General of British Columbia, Marion Best and Gary Patterson, former moderators of the United Church of Canada. Virginia Coleman, former General Secretary of the United Church. And the following officials are clergy of the United Church. John Kishore, John Jessamine, Brian Thorpe, Molly Williams, John Siebert, Phil Spencer, Foster Freed, Brad Newcomb, and John Maba. The estates of the deceased officials of the United Church, Arndt Anderson, Bill Howey, Cameron Reed, Fred Bishop, Terry White, and Bob Stiven. Michael Miller, Archbishop of the Roman Catholic Church, Fred Hiltz, former primate of the, Roman, of the Anglican Church of Canada, Ronald Barber, former Master of the Supreme Court of British Columbia, and Donald, Alan Donaldson, former Justice of the Supreme Court of British Columbia, Ron Hunick and Ian Benson, lawyers with the British Columbia Law Society, Peter Montague and Jerry Peters, officers of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police E-Division in Vancouver, and James Craven, RCMP operative, Ed John, former head of Carrier Sicani Tribal Council. Martha Piper, former president of the University of British Columbia. And Neil Guppy, former professor at the University of BC. The estate of Murray Elliott, deceased professor from UBC. Anne Heller, an official of the Unitarian Universalist Church. And Philip Hewitt, deceased former clergyman of that church. And the individuals Anne McNamee, my former wife, and Jack Thornburg. This indictment and charges read as following. I accuse these people of having done three things. Planning and participating in a criminal conspiracy to assault, denigrate, and destroy my life, work, family, public reputation, and good name, and my civil liberties deliberately and with malice of forethought. Two, planning and participating in my attempted murder and the successful murder of my associates, and in the destruction of their efforts and campaigns to expose and prosecute 
genocide and child trafficking and killing in Canada and abroad, and finally, three, actively engaging in and concealing these crimes to enable and protect the perpetrators of ongoing crimes against humanity in Canada and abroad, and to obstruct and deny justice. Accordingly, I recommend to the court that summonses be issued against these people to appear before you on Monday, October 16th at 10 a.m. in the city of Vancouver. I urge the court to take action for the sake of justice. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. I thank you for your indulgence today.